Welcome to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach, a podcast that unpacks international trade and how it affects you without putting you to sleep. Welcome to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. I'm Lori Wallach. In this episode, we're going to unpack all of the hullabaloo about EV, short for electric vehicles, and about solar that you're probably seeing in the press. First, the good news, President Biden has taken real action and engaged in trying to fight the climate crisis, to create jobs, to improve the resilience after COVID revealed the shortages and price hikes associated with our hyper-globalized, long, brittle supply chains. The Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Bill, and other pieces of legislation provide really interesting opportunities to set us in a new course where we can actually try and make sure we have a livable planet and more people getting good jobs and boosting our democracy with votes. The bad news is that various companies, some car makers, some importers of Chinese solar equipment, and some other color, and some other countries are hollering, and some other countries are hollering and trying to roll back these good initiatives. And it matters. We have less than 10 years to take drastic changes to ensure a survivable planet. And we've seen how the economic inequality and racial inequality in the fallout of our past economic and trade systems is exacerbating an honest-to-God crisis in our country's democracy. So to decipher this, we are very fortunate to have with us Ben Beachy. Ben is the Vice President of Manufacturing and Industrial Policy at the Blue-Green Alliance. Blue-Green Alliance is an alliance of unions and environmentalists. And Ben, like the Blue-Green Alliance, is dedicated to working to transform economic policies to benefit working people, fight the climate crisis, and ensure a more fair economy. So Ben joined BGA after seven years at the Sierra Club, where he founded a program called The Living Economy. And it was a program to do the kind of cross-movement organizing at which he's a real wizard to try and get investment and trade and procurement and industrial policies that create good jobs, tackle the climate change problems, curb racial, economic, and gender inequality, and do it all at the same time to actually help our country deliver on its promise. Ben and I worked together at Public Citizen. He was a wizard research director at the Global Trade Watch program there. He's done work all around the world, and it's all had one thing in common, trying to make the planet livable, people on it, working people on it, have a fairer, better shake. And so I'd like to welcome Ben Beachy to the podcast with the first question, which really is, give us a little bit of an overview about what the purpose of these different programs are, which notably have an intentional effort to have things made here. It's not just we need more green energy. It's like we need to actually make the stuff, the electric vehicles, the solar equipment, what What's that about? And is that a good idea, a bad idea? Give us the skinny, please. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lori, uh, for having me on and and for the astute question. It's a very timely question. 
So, you know, uh, whether you're talking about the, the investments in electric vehicles, the investments in solar, uh, or other uh, climate investments uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, I think this really spotlights a couple of key goals that our union and environmental partners share, which is clean energy manufacturing and also clean energy deployment. And those are really two goals that some commentators are saying are intention right now for the rapid, rapid deployment of electric vehicles and other technology. Uh, which we need to achieve our climate goals, and the building of reliable and equitable domestic supply chains for that very technology. I actually think that there's a fair amount of congruence between these two goals, deployment and manufacturing. And I can name a few few examples. Look at the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of incentives, not just for deployment for electric vehicles, but also for setting up shop in the United States to manufacture the batteries that go into electric vehicles, um, and other parts. These incentives offer a really big opportunity to marry climate action with high paying manufacturing jobs. That is important, of course, because it allows more workers to reap the economic gains of climate action. And that's how we win, frankly. You know, that, that is how we expand the chorus of support for climate policies. It's important for economic security and economic inequality. It's also important because we will win more climate policies that enable more clean energy when more workers see such policies as essential, not only for future generations, but for their own paycheck next month. And so this is essential to our historical project of tackling the climate crisis. So I've been watching in the news, and I bet a lot of our listeners have seen this too. You've got European and Asian car makers with their underwear in a significant bundle over the rules for the electric vehicle tax credits, which are very intentionally aimed at creating supply chains and manufacturing capacity domestically, not just of the actual finished vehicles, but that's part of it, but also to try and make sure that the minerals that need to go into the batteries, we have a supply that is not just reliant on China, that we are actually making those kind of batteries. And two things that struck me about that is, yes, for sure, you're right about the political bargain. But in addition, we all definitely saw and learned the hard way during the worst of the COVID crisis, how we can very quickly have shortages Shifting to solar, something like 80% of the equipment you need to make solar energy, the, the hardware, is produced in China. And they want to go solar too. So if there's only so much out there and you're going to have the stuff go to your country first, that's nothing to criticize China. We do the same damn thing. So I think that there is probably a just resilience arguments separate from the politics. Now, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that because that intentionality is what seems to be driving these other countries to get upset. And in fact, you know, in a certain way, it could be in their interest. They should do the same damn thing. <laughs> more production, more places. It's not America first. It's make sure we can make this stuff in the volume we need at a price people can afford in a lot of damn places. I think the pa pandemic has taught us a lot about the vulnerability of our current supply chains. Import dependency is just as risky for electric vehicles as it was for N95 masks. Right now, China makes about three out of every four electric vehicle batteries in the world. Everyone has to hear that and let that sink in. Three out of every four, 75% of these electric vehicle batteries, the future of transportation, just in one country, and it could be any one country, but people get sick there and production stops. There's natural disaster, production stops. The whole system goes off track. Ben, back to you. So look, we cannot expose our climate goals 
to shipping bottlenecks or, or geopolitical spat. And that's precisely what we're doing right now. To ensure consistent deployment of clean energy to meet our climate targets, we need to make more of the nuts and bolts of clean energy here. I mean, it's the same argument for food security. And again, each nation has the prerogative to shore up their own domestic supply. Another thing about that fact that three out of every four EV batteries come from China is it's just one example of how global production of clean energy goods is highly concentrated right now in a tiny handful of countries. Such market concentration is not our friend for our climate goals. It jeopardizes our climate goals because it's not a recipe for long-term price stability. We should not pin our climate goals on trust that the world's monopoly producers will maintain low prices. I mean, when has that worked domestically? It will not work internationally. Instead, by growing uh, clean technology manufacturing, solar, EVs, in multiple countries, including the United States, we can help to promote the global competition and innovation that are needed to continue driving down costs over the medium term. So more manufacturing hubs means more competition, means lower prices, means stronger deployment, means we can actually tackle the climate crisis. So I want everyone to like think about what Ben just said, because he just like basically shredded one of these straw men arguments that gets thrown out, which is team status quo, who are monopolists, are trying to basically corner the market with arguments like, oh, if we just rely on ourselves and try and go it alone, we're even less resilient. That's not what anyone's saying. Just to underscore what Ben just said, the vision that these US policies are contributing to is us here creating the capacity to make these critical goods with in mind the fact that Europe should be doing the same thing, various neighbors in the Americas should be doing the same things. The more sets of producers, the less concentration, the more resilience, the more redundancy, and then we can be trading. It's not that it's autarky, you do your own, but rather the notion of having so much of any one of these essential goods that's going to be critical to the planet's future, being in one place is inherently high risk to say nothing of anti-competitive. So I want to flip over a little bit to solar because with the solar issue, it gets even hairier. So far on the EV, and we're going to get to this in a second, so keep this in mind, there hasn't been any backsliding. The US government made the right policy, and so far they're sticking to it, but there's a hell of a lot of howling. In the solar area, we've got these new tax credits and at the same time, the president just waived for two years some trade cheating rules that may be announced. And as a result, we're going to be importing solar equipment from China. And we already know there's been bad conduct in this area because the silicon is being made for these units, is being made in places where there's horrible forced labor problems in the parts of China where the Uyghur people are being oppressed, locked up in concentration camps. So not only is there a resilience issue, but there's also some very fundamental human rights and labor rights issues. And I'm wondering if you can just update us a little bit about what is the story, like what practically are these new solar tax credits and how do they work and what needs to be done to try and make sure we're actually going to start producing that equipment here versus also being reliant on, in this case, 80% of it coming from just one country. Yeah, it is a critical issue. Um, 
So to, to answer the tax credit question, a huge portion of the Inflation Reduction Act is uh, unprecedented investments in the expansion of solar, wind, and other clean uh, energy technologies. There's over $100 billion in there for tax credits to speed up the deployment of solar panel uh, arrays throughout the United States. And there is a 10% uh, uh, domestic content bonus layered on top of that. So if you're a smart deployer, not because you care about forced labor in Uyghur uh, area of China, but simply because you care about your bottom line, you're going to want to have that 10% bonus. That's what's going to make your, your project profitable. And so you're going to see, you see built in an incentive uh, for solar companies to not only deploy more solar in the United States, but to manufacture more solar in the United States. So we ex should expect uh, this bill to uh, help to spur a rebirth of solar manufacturing uh, in this country. And that is critical, again, just to, to build on something that, that you named earlier, the building of manufacturing for clean technology supply chains in the United States is not about workers here versus workers in another country. In fact, it is an expression of solidarity with workers in other countries insofar as you have labor abuses in, in our supply chain. And that's precisely what we see with both solar and electric vehicles. Boosting domestic manufacturing can help curb our dependency on overseas production that right now is marred by labor abuses. You mentioned forced labor for making solar panels in the Uyghur area of China. That is absolutely true. Another example, in the electric vehicle market, the average electric vehicle requires 29 pounds of cobalt. Two-thirds of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And cobalt mines in the Congo are notorious for employing about 40,000 children and emitting enough toxic pollution to cause birth defects. The clean energy economy cannot be built on the backs of exploited workers abroad. By onshoring clean energy manufacturing, we can help to stop feeding such abuses and start to actually counter them. I just want to underscore all of the ways in which Ben is pointing out that it's not an either or, it's a plus and. In that, we've heard, for instance, with the solar issues and some of the trade cases, oh, if we keep out forced labor products and Uyghur abuse products, if we discipline against subsidies that undermine the ability for U.S. producers to not just get their clocks cleaned here in the U.S. market by subsidized imports, i.e. they can't be in business, they can't make a new supply. If we do any of those things, then that's going to be contributing to burning down the planet, basically. We can't wait. And in fact, you know, Ben's point is we can't not make this stuff or we are going to burn down the planet. It's backwards. But we're hearing a lot from a lot of really powerful, entrenched interests that want the status quo. And so I'm keen also, just as a practical matter, Ben, if you could explain to folks how the EV credits work also and how that over time is going to help build production here, because then we're going to get to the whole, what do we do with all these complaints and the tax part of the discussion? Yes, to dive into the EV credits uh, a little bit. So there's a whole suite of investments in the law for uh, clean transportation and including electric vehicles. So there's actually additional investments for uh, electrifying commercial vehicles, which is critical, not only for our climate goals, but for clean air and reducing the, the toxic pollution from tailpipes that disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. There's there's funding in there to expand our EV charging infrastructures, just to, to couch the EV tax credit in the broader suite of investments. And yes, there is a tax credit 
that would help uh, shave uh, the cost of electric vehicles, new electric vehicles, by up to $7,500. So your, your average new electric vehicle uh, would cost up to $7,500 less uh, for families. Now, the way that's structured is that half of that is a battery components credit and half of it is a critical minerals credit. So the battery components um, is available uh, for vehicles that use batteries uh, with a given percentage of their components manufactured or assembled in North America. Um, and it's it's roughly 50% um, by 2024, 20, uh, and then it goes up to 100% by 2029. For the critical minerals credit, it's uh, the other half of that credit, the other half of that 7,500, so a $3,750 credit. And that will be available for vehicles for which the value of the critical minerals used in that battery are mined in countries either in the United States um, or in countries where the United States has a free trade agreement or are recycled in North America. Basically, all of that boils down to making more of the EV supply chain in the United States, right? Uh, those are strong incentives uh, to, to build out a domestic manufacturing supply chain, a, a supply chain within North America. Uh, I'm happy to get to the trade ramifications of that, but that is in short what the tax credit does. Okay. So that makes an enormous amount of sense. It's basically pairing government spending to to actually make possible some of this new production with incentives to invest domestically. But then you've got other countries and certain companies all howling about it. That is sort of the trade first perspective, which is people who are saying, this is an illegal trade barrier, as if the goal of life is to avoid illegal trade barriers as compared to trade as a tool to try and get us the real goals, like people having economic security and people having a survivable planet and there being more of a sense of literal security in our livelihoods, in our lives, and our families are healthy. So what is the answer back to the, oh my God, the WTO rules don't allow us to do these things that will save the planet, democracy, and our jobs? Yeah, look, trade is a means, not an end. Um, and I think over the last 40 to 50 years, a, a number of policymakers have gotten that one twisted, uh, right? The ends are, as you named, uh, securing a livable climate, having good paying jobs that uh, allow us to sustain our families and communities, um, having a more just society. These are the ends we seek, and we should tailor our trade uh, policies towards those ends and not vice versa. We have a decade left to turn the corner on climate change. We simply do not have time for hurdles based on trade rules that were written before we even knew about climate change, right? The trade regime needs to catch up to what is unfortunately an unyielding climate reality. We simply do not have time for countries to be challenging each other's climate policies on the basis of decades-old trade rules. Instead of launching more of these cases, the U.S. and its trading partners could take a more proactive and collaborative approach. One example is they could craft a, a mechanism like a climate peace clause, which would essentially be a moratorium on using old WTO rules to challenge each other's climate policies. You know, that would offer the kind of policy space that not just the United States, but countries the world over need so as to pursue climate action in the critical next few years. So that's my quick response. So folks, this climate peace clause idea 
that Ben mentioned is actually a very smart one. What it means technically is just like a ceasefire. A lot of these outdated rules, basically very much influenced by the big monopoly producers, have um, put in place what would be barriers to doing the things we need to save the planet. So for instance, while they don't discipline subsidies to fossil fuel, they do discipline the subsidies that we've been talking about to actually have governments investing in building out some of the infrastructure we need to transition to green energy. These rigged rules are basically potentially obstacles. And the peace clause idea is instead of having a circular firing squad of countries using those to attack each other, to just say like, okay, for five years, while we negotiate what the new rules should be, we all agree to put down the trade challenges and stop shooting at each other. Unfortunately, it's literally that. You have countries going after each other's state level and federal level investments in creating solar and other renewable energy products. The most recent one is some countries in the global south are challenging the European Union decision that palm oil-based energy, given it's so climate destructive and lots of human rights problems, can't be left out of what is considered a biofuel. All of these rules, if they don't serve the goals, need to be put on ice until they can get renewed negotiated, which then gets to serve the last question, which is, Ben, when you're looking forward to really what needs to happen to deliver both the survivable planet, but frankly, the more just and therefore helping democracy survive and thrive version of how we go forward, how do you see these really historic Biden administration investments and policies in the context of that bigger arc. I mean, for me to see this happening in the U.S., it's just wonderfully surprising. And I'm wondering if you can put that in context to what, you know, historically we need to do and then going forward, how we're going to make sure this really does work and we're carrying our weight. Yeah, it's a really great question. I think part of the answer is that EV tax credit that we're that's causing all kinds of consternation from Japan, Korea, the EU is is but one of 104 different climate investments in this law. Their whole concern is essentially that, you know, in the short term there will be a demand for uh, domestic EV ba battery manufacturing that will not be met with the supply of EV battery manufacturing. But the bill itself has an answer to that question which is it invests billions, tens of billions of dollars directly into the supply of EV battery manufacturers. And, and guess who's taking advantage of that? Panasonic, LG, Honda, Toyota, Stellantis, just to name a few of the companies based in Japan, Korea, and the EU that have recently announced plans to establish new battery manufacturing facilities in the United States, in part to take advantage of the very same laws, supply side subsidies for battery manufacturing. And those same facilities owned by Japanese, Korean, and European firms will further benefit from the very EV tax credit that Japan, Korea, and the EU are attacking because it will boost demand for the batteries they produce here in these facilities. So, you know, I'd say that's part of the answer is we have a whole suite of bold investments um, to, to marry the twin goals of, of tackling climate action um, and creating good jobs. And just a, one final word to place this in the broader arc that you named. Um, something I have not really raised is, is our own inequality here in the United States. The IMF actually did a study 
finding that the decline in U.S. manufacturing under unfair trade policies over the last couple of decades has been a key driver of income inequality in the United States. I mean, most folks, I think, know this story. Laid off manufacturing workers have been forced to compete for lower paying service sector jobs, putting downward pressure on middle class wages across the economy. Less reported is the fact that the manufacturing decline and those pay cuts have disproportionately impacted black workers. You know, the Economic Policy Institute has found in a report last year, they found that manu black manufacturing employment has fallen more than 30% since the late 1990s, which has contributed to the black white wage gap. And that is particularly true in the automotive sector for EVs, where, where black workers have been a higher share of the workforce than in other manufacturing sectors. So spurring targeted manufacturing growth in our clean technology supply chains can help to reverse this arc, right? This arc of increasing economic and racial inequality so as to support our building of a more just economy. That is the perfect place to end this discussion. And I'm so glad that you have brought out the, what I call the fairness factor. It's not just good for climate. It's not just good for jobs, but there's a fundamental fairness factor in this potential investment if it's done right. It has been a serious problem of the U.S. really not contributing for many decades to the battle against the climate crisis. And it's been a very serious problem in our country of deindustrialization disparately hitting people of color, parts of the country. And so I want everyone to let it sink in what Ben said. All of this money, which is an investment in our future of economic justice and a livable planet, is available to any company that wants to come here and make it here. It's not a Americans only. The point is to get the stuff made, to get the good jobs created, to basically be in a position to contribute to the planetary fight against cl the climate crisis. And so again, as you're hearing in the press, this is a problem, this is a problem. The programs are designed with very intentional goals and they're available to any comer. The point is to get the volume of the stuff up, to create the jobs and create the tools to fight the climate crisis. And it is basically an investment in our futures. So Ben, I want to give you a chance to say any last thing because you've been so helpful in, in basically breaking through all of the blah, blah that a lot of people are seeing in snippets. Now they can actually understand what the hell's going on. Any last thoughts you want to share? So one last thought I want to share is when Congress passed Dodd-Frank on the day it passed, a Wall Street lobbyist famously called it halftime in the fight over financial regulation. It is now halftime in this fight for a livable climate and a more just economy. Uh, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. The second half is called implementation, which is a really boring term for a really monumental task. The history of this bill has frankly not yet been written. Um, and it's up to us to determine whether this $400 billion nearly in climate funding redresses or reinforces the structural injustices that we've just been talking about. Um, and that really depends on what we do next. So there's a fight ahead uh, for a livable climate, for good jobs, and for a more just economy. And Ben Beachy and the Blue Green Alliance will be helping lead that fight. So to get more informed, you can go to their website, follow Ben, a real visionary and leader on these issues. And thank you, everybody. This episode pairs with the previous one on the Factory Towns Report that lays out fundamentally 
the social, political, democracy stakes of getting this right. And as Ben said, we're at halftime, so get in on the fight. Ben's one of your leaders. Thank you very much, Ben Beachy, and to everyone who's joined us. Thank you, and stand by for the next episode of Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach.